And welcome to Here We Stand. This is the voice of the Republic and the Resistance. I'm your regular host, Kevin Annett, Eagle Strong Voice. And I love the ending words by Amanda Palmer. You might have heard her say, how much time do we have? Well, folks, not a hell of a lot of time. Things are running out for the human race. And we recognize our ancestors have shown us how. The vision of a world held in common, the basis of common law. We have to uproot the system once and for all because it's responsible for the genocide for the crimes, and also it has triggered our response, our reclamation of the world. Now, today, of course, this program is designed to educate and train people who volunteered for the global public campaign to disestablish the Roman Catholic Church, really the epitome of the corporate genocidal system. Now, that campaign actually begins a month today on Sunday, September 4th. Our theme today is you can't take action wearing a blindfold. Because we have to understand our enemy, understand what we're facing. And also the fact, it was interesting when they were talking about the diggers in England, that was part of the English Revolution, that in 1649 convicted Charles Stuart, the King of England, of waging a war against his own people and lawfully executed him. And one of the bases of his trial and conviction was the fact that he had what's called command responsibility. Just like Jorge Bergoglio assumed the other day, so-called Pope Francis, he took command responsibility for the crime of genocide when he said, yes, it happened. Well, folks, our common law tradition says that person then needs to be put on trial. And the question is, what are we all waiting for? Well, the action we're taking is beyond putting somebody on trial. He's already been tried and convicted. Now, the question is not only arresting individuals, especially figureheads like him, but how do we disestablish the entire crime? Well, today's show is the first of several such teachings. The first half of the show is going to be on sharing necessary knowledge, education. Second half, we're going to be doing practical training. What do you do on Sunday, September 4th and beyond when we're taking direct actions at these churches? Because these training workshops are being conducted not only in Canada, but in America and seven other countries in Europe and Asia. People in those countries are all part of our growing common law republic alliance. Our aim is to equip people to take action to end the oldest crime in history by defunding and disestablishing the Church of Rome. But that work has great significance because it's aimed also at the chief ally of Rome, the rising Chinese corporate empire, which is engulfing our nations thanks to massive funding and credit from the Vatican Bank. Our campaign is a weapon against China as well. And so our work has tremendous repercussions that go far beyond simply the issue of genocide by the Catholic Church and its other church allies like the Anglicans and the United Church of Canada. Our aim is nothing less than the defeat of that global corporatocracy that's destroying our lives, our liberties, and our future. And our aim, too, is to replace that tyranny with sovereign common law republics of free people. That's the big overview on this, the big perspective. Now, if you listen to last week's July 31st broadcast, You'll understand part of the monstrous nature of what we face. You heard eyewitness voices of the Canadian genocide and also a description of the details of the nature of the Vatican as a transnational criminal power. But you also heard, as you do on every show, the great power that we all hold once we overcome dependency and slave thinking by acting together. Now, in that regard, and tomorrow on our websites, Murderbydecree.com under ITCCS updates and RepublicofCanada.org under breaking news, there'll be posted three very important documents. First of all, is the law passed 
the public reparations law passed last Thursday, August 4th, which nullifies the Church of Rome and expropriates its possessions, its land, its wealth, come everywhere in the world. This is a nullified criminal power. Under, under international law, we all have the right to seize the wealth and lands of the Church of Rome, the biggest corporation on the planet and the most secretive. That law is operable anywhere in the world because common law has universal jurisdiction. That's the first thing that'll be posted. The second is the actual warrant allowing you to go into these places and seize the property. It's called a global banishment and expropriation warrant issued by our International Common Law Court of Justice. It's dated as of midnight, August 4th, and it requires everyone to not only vacate those churches and surrender the wealth, but it empowers the police and deputizes the police to assist us. Anyone who interferes with this law is obstructing justice and under the law can be detained. That's worked in the past when we've done church occupations. The police have always stood back when we show them these documents. And the final document you'll see is a public notice, a leaflet to hand out to the public saying, look, the Catholic Church is a convicted criminal body. It's been legally expropriated and banished from our community. And its properties and wealth have been seized by court order and now belong to and can be used by the people. So in other words, we're not going in and just grabbing this for ourselves. We grab it in the name and take it lawfully in the name of all the people. And that's the meaning of the law that was passed and how we're going to start enacting it. Now, our allies in America, Ireland, England, France, Holland, Italy, Greece, and Australia are passing similar laws in, over the next week or so. The warrant being issued tomorrow uh, is going to be posted on the site, like I said, but it allows us to act lawfully and collectively. And that's the difference. And that's the power of our movement. When we did that in the past, it forced a pope from office. It forced the truth of genocide into public light. We're going to be doing that again, only now, not only in Canada, but around the world. As we learned when we first started occupying churches nearly 20 years ago, we have to do these actions not on our own, but as groups of people who are knowledgeable about the issue and who are trained to know how to deal with the unforeseen, like police harassing us, threats and smears, and hostile churchgoers. Therefore, the need to know our enemy and to know ourselves. Well, in a way, knowing the enemy is the easy part. Um, and some of the books I'll be drawn on today that you should all get is the Manual for Whistleblowers called Truth Teller Shield, our common law training manual, and a very important book I wrote last year called Dethroning a Rogue Power, Why the Vatican Must Be Denied Membership and Presence in the World Community and at the United Nations. It lays out all the stuff we're going to be talking about today. Because the Roman Catholic Church is not a church. It's not a state. It's a corporate empire, really a precursor to the present day corporatocracy. It wasn't an accident that the Vatican helped set up Italian fascism and Nazism in Germany. It's the model. They believe in the corporatocracy. That's why they are such good bed buddies with China. The same imperial notion that there's one ruler, one corporate head, and everybody obeys him. Well, there's considerable evidence about all of these Vatican crimes and everything. Uh, too much really to report on one hour show today. But you can see a lot of that at murderbydecree.com. And in the archives of this program, just go to bbsradio.com slash here we stand. Listen to those shows. It's all there. You've got to do a lot of uh, listening and learning on this because this everything we're talking about is the result of a living movement that spans nearly 30 years. It's not somebody's idea on the Internet they're putting out as the truth. This is coming out of people's real experiences. 
the death of seven of my friends in Vancouver who paid the price for that. And from out of that movement, we've learned a lot of practical lessons about how to fight and overcome bigger opponents, like just gathering the hard evidence, the knowledge and the action, how do we, we can outmaneuver those bigger opponents? Well, as Sun Tzu says, you've got to know yourself, know your enemy to win a battle. Knowing ourselves is the hard part because we know it's very easy to look externally and look at an enemy and understand it, as we've so thoroughly done with the Vatican and the genocidal system that grew up out of it globally. But knowing ourselves is a bit harder because we tend to think of ourselves as just me, me alone. When people write, they say, how can I do this? No, we have to look beyond the fact that we're individuals. We are actually part of a bigger self, like cells in a body politic. We're part of a community of people governed not so much by so-called authorities in government as by a group mind. And we, when we start challenging that mind and its system and its assumptions, and we challenge our own connection to it, the mental control it has over us instills fear in us, and it tends to pull back many of us from taking action against it. That's been our experience. Well, we don't break those mental shackles in the abstract, just reading about it or resolving individually to fight it. No, we broke those mental shackles in the course of fighting that system as a group. And I've given you that classic example of William Coombs, who was able to come in and occupy with us Holy Rosary Cathedral in February 2008. It really forced the apology and all of this coming out. He was able to do that because he said to me, I was scared of going into that church because of those priests, but then I saw all of you going in and they didn't want to let you down. And William came in with us. And that's the spirit that overcomes our individual fear and deficiencies. Our illusions and fears start dropping away, not by reading an article, but by getting a black eye, by coming up against the system and not backing down, but doing something about the black eye. So educating ourselves for the next 15 minutes or so, we're going to talk about that. And after this break, when we're going to listen to some important uh, teachings by a guy called Henry Thoreau, who invented the term civil disobedience, after that, we're going to get into practical questions of how we're going to train over the next month. The month of August is devoted to training people to take action at these genocidal Catholic churches, how we disestablish that church and deal tactically and strategically with the opposition we'll get. Well, you can look at the basic facts of, of the crime, murderbydecree.com. It's really in a synopsis. If you go to page 12, you'll see the crime laid out there in black and white, starting in Canada, but going around the world. The fact that the genocide of so many people and indigenous children, over 60,000 of them in Canada, it started as a project by the Catholic Church going back many centuries. How do you get a people to wipe themselves out and allow us to wipe them out? It was a Jesuit model. Uh, transplanted into Canada by a guy called Bishop Dorier. It said you wipe out the traditional people and you, then you brainwash a new leadership. The, uh, they would take chiefs and uh, train them as good little Catholics and send them back into the communities and uh, to monitor and run the village on behalf of the church. That still goes on today. Those, those chiefs that you know, welcomed Bergoglio to Canada, they're all the descendants of those puppet brainwashed chiefs. And as part of that, they had to wipe out the traditional people. Well, remnants of those traditional people survive. Those are the ones who work with us. Those are the ones who are going to be doing actions. Well, we're seizing Catholic churches. They're going to be occupying church lands all over their territories, as they've already done among the Chilcotin, the Squamish, the Métis, the Cree people. They've all been seizing church uh, lands, 
evicting the priest from the local Catholic church and either burning it down, as happened last year or two, or taking over the church buildings and opening them up as daycares, homes for the homeless, that kind of thing that we can all start doing with these Catholic churches. So that system has been in place for a long time. It was transplanted. It, it began in Rome, and it's going to end there because they're the main target in our crosshairs. So educate yourself. Go to murderbydecree.com. It gives you the background into what we're facing. The specific actor, um, again, the, the bringing it up to today, the book you should get is this Dethroning a Rogue Power. Go to Amazon.com, put in my name, Kevin Annett, A-N-N-E-T-T. You'll see it right there. Advertises one of my books, Dethroning a Rogue Power. And what that does, I'm going to spend a few minutes going into that because it talks about the fact that as the oldest and wealthiest corporation on the planet, the Church of Rome actually claims authority in both this world and the next, which is a very strange thing to do because I read somewhere that Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. Um, and yet they claim to occupy authority in both worlds. I often say, well, what need has God of a, of a Vatican bank or property? It was interesting because when the uh, none of a city council, you may recall we talked last week, none of a city council nullified tax exemptions for the Catholic Church on their land just before Bergoglio showed up for his two-hour token visit to them. And the Catholic priest was up in arms saying, this is discrimination against us. Well, folks, you're just paying taxes now like anybody else. And as a matter of fact, you don't even have the right to operate now lawfully because you're a criminal society. And that money you save is going to be used for criminal purposes. Hence, our obligation to take that money from you. Otherwise, just read the Transnational Criminal Organization Act passed in 2000. International law you murder children and traffic them, you don't have the right to collect money for yourself. And so, it, it, you know, this whole line by the church that they're both a government and a religion, it falls flat on its face when you look at what happens in practice. And um, the thing about the Catholic Church that you need to know is that it's, there's four things to find as being a transnational criminal organization. And the, the Catholic Church fulfills all of those. Um, it traffics human beings, it, especially women and children. It smuggles migrants. It launders money for criminal organizations, specifically the mafia. And it illicitly manufactures and traffics firearms. Again, you look at this book, and we've got it all documented how it does that. Um, you know, for example, human trafficking. It's got the longest history of human tra trafficking of any corporation on the planet. That's right in its whole philosophy. The whole history of European colonialism, genocide, religious persecution, the way it operates boarding schools, orphanages, and child labor sweatshops and hospitals that have trafficked uh, children, newborns, standing policy of the Catholic Church to grab newborns and traffic them and do even worse things with them. And we'll get to that in a minute about the Ninth Circle. In addition, the standing Vatican policy, it's called Crimen Solicitanus. It's governed all Catholics since the year 1929. It says, when children are raped by priests or in any way harmed within the church, everyone is silenced. No one is to tell the police. Anyone who does is excommunicated. Now, to a non-Catholic, we don't quite understand the significance of that. It means in their mindset, their very strange mindset, that one man can throw them into hell. If you're excommunicated, you end up in hell. And not only that, get this, I didn't realize this until I checked out in Vatican archives. When you're excommunic an excommunicant, you can be legally killed. Because the Vatican claims power of life and death over every single 
human being on the planet, still to this day, coming from the Unanim, uh, Unum Sanctum Papal Bull of 1302, still in effect, it says, if you're excommunicated, we can then kill you. And, um, and so people get terrorized by this fact. So if you snitch out a child rapist, you can then be killed. You're not just excommunicated, you're, you're fair game to be killed. That's how they keep everyone in line. And so it's, this policy is a criminal conspiracy all, all over the planet. It means if you're a Catholic, you have to help cover up child trafficking and you're not to tell the police. That's also an act of treason. It means that you have to violate the child protection laws and due process within your own country. You've got to act as an agent of a foreign power to aid and abet child rape, to protect child rapists and child killers. That's what every Catholic is expected to do under canon law. Now, I want a very important point here. One of the, the law we passed is called the Public Reparations Law, the seizing Catholic wealth as reparations for all the crimes. But also it's called a premonire. And that's a very important thing in English common law, going back to the 14th century. The kings of England and the parliament passed a thing called the premonire, which said, the Catholic Church does not have the right to take money out of our country, nor does anyone, any English citizen, have the right to operate as an agent of the Pope, because that's an act of treason. So every time the Vatican pumps money out of Canada or any country, they're committing a crime under common law. And anytime anyone acts in, as an agent of the Vatican, which every Catholic is expected to do, then they too are committing an act of treason against the people of our countries. In other words, the Vatican is the, has been a declared enemy of the people of every free state since the 14th century. But of course, those laws, those traditions are completely buried. When they repress common law, they're also repressing the knowledge of this oldest enemy of the people on the planet. People say, oh, we can't listen to this. He's a raving anti-Catholic. Well, folks, the Pope himself is an enemy of every single Catholic. They can take any one of you, your children and kill them at any point and traffic them, and you can't do a thing about it. Is that the kind of church you want to belong to? This is what we say to people. This is part of the stuff and the material we're going to be sharing with people at these Catholic churches before and during our occupation and seizure of them. So uh, that's one aspect of the crimes of the Vatican. Uh, arms trafficking, is, they own the biggest small arms company in the world. They're heavily invested in all the uh, computer technology and arms dealers all over the world. Uh, they fund third world dictators. As a matter of fact, the present guy, Jorge Bergoglio, so-called Pope Francis, the convicted criminal, as part of his cover-up for the Argentine military junta and their murder of 30,000 Argentines, he helped get them Exocet missiles in their war against England in 1982 in the Falkland Islands. Archbishop Bergoglio lined up the Exocet missiles through the Vatican Bank. So these are the kind of darlings that we're dealing with, you know, these kinds of uh, arms dealers, child traffickers, and... Um, you know, the, the crime goes on and on and on. The uh, U.S. Justice Department figures that it, since in the last 10 years, get this, the Vatican Bank has laundered over $100 billion for organized crime across the world. $100 billion for the mafia. That's what the money in the collection plate is being used for, and that's why we have the right to seize it. So I would urge you to look through that book, Dethroning a Rogue Power. It gives really important examples. Here's another more personal example. I remember when I went to Rome for the first time, I conducted an exorcism there. That's a story in itself, October 2009. And uh, the next day, a tornado hit the center of Rome. And that week, the European press began reporting uh, Pope Benedict's personal involvement 
in uh, covering up the death of children in the Catholic Church. So these actions do have an impact. But I remember when I was there, I met this seasoned Italian senator. His name was Furio Colombo in the Democrat Party there. And he was an insider with the government for over 40 years. And uh, he summed it up. Here's a direct quote that I have on tape from Furio Colombo when I talked to him about our campaign. He said, quote, the Vatican, the mafia, the government, and the bankers are all part of the same group. They are above the law, and all they care about is their money, but their real currency is blood, unquote. Now, that's from a senior Italian senator who'd been in, in and out of government for over 40 years. Now, he mentioned blood, so I mentioned to him about the Ninth Circle. I'd just been meeting Tos Nienhaus and Anne-Marie von Bienberg, the insiders in the Ninth Circle who were raised in the cult, saw children sacrificed ritually in Catholic cathedrals all over Europe, and saw Bergoglio and Ratzinger both participate in those ceremonies. When, Bergo when uh, Furio Colombo, the senator, said their real currency is blood, I mentioned the Ninth Circle to him. And he looked shocked. He closed the door of his office and he looked sick. And he said with a trembling voice, if I say anything about that group, I will not live out the week, unquote. Furio Colombo, Italian senator, right from the horse's mouth. So, I mean, this is what we're dealing with, folks. But it's kind of like, uh, you know, I love that scene in uh, the movie uh, The Untouchables where Al, Cap Al Capone, who runs Chicago, is being taken on by a federal treasury agent. Elliot Ness. And Elliot Ness finds the one honest cop on the Chicago police force. And, uh, you know, uh, the cop shows where Capone is operating inside all these banks. And Elliot Ness is confused. He said, you mean he owns all these banks and he's operating totally in the open? And the cop kind of smiles and says, yeah, well, the problem isn't that people don't know what's going on. The problem is who wants to go up against El Capone? Right. I mean, when he owns the town. Well, in a larger sense, that's exactly what we're dealing with, folks. Who wants to go up against the Catholic Church? They run everything, don't they? Well, they're weaker than you think. Uh, they may try to minimize and decriminalize and normalize their acts of genocide, but the truth is everywhere. We see it, and people are beginning to awaken to that. And um, that's part of the, the main lesson of this education. Now, of course, we can't summarize it all now. What we are going to do now is give my boys a break. We're going to listen to. Uh, two little short five-minute educationals on civil disobedience and really what we're fighting for from the writings of Henry David Thoreau, uh, 19th century American, really a bright light who, who really brought in the fact that we don't have to go along with the powers that be as sovereign beings endowed by our creator with unalienable liberties and soul. We have the right to say no at any point, including and especially to these powers to the government and churches. We're going to listen to this for a few minutes, and then we'll be back. In March 1845, the United States acquired a new president, James K. Polk, a forceful, aggressive political outsider, intent on strengthening his country and asserting its preeminence in front of other world powers, especially Mexico and Great Britain. Within a year of his inauguration, he had declared full-scale war on Mexico because of squabbles over the Texan border, and was soon rattling his sabre at Britain over the ownership of Oregon. To complete the picture, Polk was a vigorous defender of slavery, who dismissed the arguments of abolitionists as naive and sentimental. Polk was a popular president, admired by many for his gung-ho manner, but a sizable minority of the citizenry disliked him intensely. 
one especially committed opponent was a writer from Massachusetts called Henry David Thoreau. Thoreau is now a canonical American literary figure, studied in every high school for his lyrical masterpiece, Walden. But there is another, more political side to Thoreau, now usually airbrushed out of his story, which came to the fore in relation to the president. Thoreau quickly realized that he was opposed to everything Polk stood for. He hated what became the Mexican-American War, instinctively siding with the losing Mexican side. He was wary of Polk's squabbles with Britain and was appalled by the administration's policy of hunting down and returning runaway slaves to their masters in the South. Thoreau's anger against his president found its impassioned expression in an essay he published in 1849, now known as Civil Disobedience. At the heart of the essay is the question of what an honest citizen should do about a president he or she wholeheartedly opposes. The prevailing view was that because Polk had won a majority, those who were against him should now fall silent. It should, it was often said, be the duty of a good citizen to fold away their objections and just respect the will of the majority. But this was precisely the point Thoreau wished to probe and upturn. He suggested that true patriots were not those who blindly followed their administration. They were those who followed their own consciences, and in particular, the principles of reason. Thoreau wished to redistribute prestige away from blinkered obedience towards independent thought. What marked out a noble citizen of the Republic, a real American, was not, in Thoreau's view, that they respectfully shut up, but that they thought for themselves every day of an administration's life. On the basis of just this kind of independent thinking, Thoreau signaled a radical opposition to Polk's term. He denounced the Mexican-American War, the repatriation of slaves, and the outlook of the government more generally. And so as to underline his opposition, Thoreau held back payment of his taxes. In July 1846, he walked into Concord, Massachusetts to get his shoes repaired and was promptly arrested and thrown into the town's jail. Thoreau saw nothing undignified about spending some time behind bars. As he wrote, Under a government which imprisons any unjustly, the true place for a just man is a prison. All machines have their friction, Thoreau admitted, but when injustice is too great, you should let your life be a counter-friction to stop the machine. Thoreau didn't advocate the non-payment of taxes as a rule, and in fact, a well-meaning aunt soon paid his bill. The non-payment was just one example of the many non-violent ways that a democratically elected government could and should be resisted whenever its actions veer into aggression or unreason. An election may settle who the president might be, but it doesn't determine that everything the president does is right or that one should simply do nothing until the next election. Above all, Thoreau hated political passivity. Sarcastically, he wrote, There are thousands who are, in opinion, opposed to slavery and to the war, who yet, in effect, do nothing to put an end to them who, esteeming themselves children of Washington and Franklin, sit down with their hands in their pockets and say that they know not what to do and do nothing. This would not be Thoreau's way. How does it become a man to behave towards this American government today? I answer that he cannot without disgrace be associated with it. Thoreau argued that the citizen must never just resign his conscience to the legislation and put himself at the service of some unscrupulous man in power. 
Thoreau mocked that most legislators, politicians, lawyers, ministers and office holders are as likely to serve the devil without intending it as God. Thoreau would not be such a servant. This most American of writers knew exactly whom it was right for him to serve, his own mind and conscience. Most of the time, successful modern life involves lots of technology, constantly being connected with other people, working very hard for as much money as possible, and doing what we're told. So it may come as a surprise that some of the best advice about modern life comes from an unemployed writer who lived alone in the woods and refused to pay his taxes. Henry David Thoreau reminds us about the importance of simplicity, authenticity, and downright disobedience. He was born in 1817 in Concord, an unassuming town west of Boston. His father was a pencil maker, and his mother took in boarders. He attended Harvard College in 1833, yet he rejected the ordinary career paths like law, medicine, or the church. Then Thoreau struck up a remarkable friendship with the American transcendentalist philosopher Ralph Waldo Emerson. Transcendentalism is a philosophy that emphasizes the importance of the spiritual over the material when it comes to leading a fulfilling life. Emerson and his transcendentalism had a huge influence on Thoreau. Moreover, Emerson helped Thoreau find a place where he could focus on his writing. The older man owned a plot of land in the woods surrounding the nearby Walden Pond, and in 1845 he allowed Thoreau to build a small cabin there, three by four and a half metres. In his two years in the cabin, Thoreau penned the first draft of his most notable work, Walden, or Life in the Woods, which was eventually published in 1854. It would become an inspirational text about self-discovery. Thoreau argued that his escape to Walden Pond was not simply a relaxing retreat to the forest. He settled there to live deep and suck out the marrow of life, as he put it. I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life, and see if I could not learn what it had to teach, and not, when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. After some time in the cabin, Thoreau discovered a different, more conscious lifestyle. To begin with, he concluded that we actually need very few things. He suggested that we think about our belongings in terms of how little we can get by with, rather than how much we can get. He managed to sustain himself on only one day of work a week. He pointed out that walking the distance of a 30-mile train journey took a day, but working to earn the money to pay for the same journey would take more than a day. Like his friend Emerson, Thoreau deeply valued what he called self-reliance. He distrusted society and the progress it claimed to have made. The civilized man has built a coach, he said, but has lost the use of his feet. He felt that economic independence from other people and from the government was crucial, and while he understood that we need companionship from time to time, he felt that too often we use others' company to fill gaps in our inner life that we're afraid to confront. The task of learning to live alone was, for Thoreau, not so much about carrying out daily chores as it was about becoming a good companion for oneself, relying first and foremost on oneself for friendship, intimacy and moral guidance. Insist on yourself, never imitate, he wrote. Most of all, one should change oneself before seeking to change the world. Thoreau also viewed technology as an often unnecessary distraction. He saw the practical benefits of new inventions, but he also warned that these innovations couldn't address the real challenges of personal happiness. 
Our inventions are wont to be pretty toys, which distract our attention from serious things. We are in great haste to construct a magnetic telegraph from Maine to Texas, but Maine and Texas, it may be, have nothing important to communicate. Thoreau believed we should instead look to nature, which is full of spiritual significance. He thought of animals, forests and waterfalls as inherently valuable, both for their beauty and their role in the ecosystem. We can best understand ourselves as a part of nature. We should see ourselves as nature looking into nature, rather than an external force or the master of nature. Most of all, nature provides the meaning that money and technology and other people's opinions cannot, by teaching us to be humble and more aware, by fostering introspection and self-discovery. This mental state, and not money or technology, provides real progress. Thoreau optimistically declared, Only that day dawns to which we are awake. There is more day to dawn. The sun is but a morning star. Perhaps the best testament of the value of Thoreau's individual contemplation and personal authenticity is that his ideas lead him to powerful political conclusions. Thoreau argued that people are morally obliged to challenge a government that upholds hypocritical or flagrantly unfair laws. So Thoreau turned to what he called civil disobedience, peacefully resisting immoral laws in protest. In July 1846, he withheld payment of his poll tax duty to avoid paying for the Mexican-American war and slavery. I ask for not at once no government, but at once a better government, he wrote after spending the night in jail. It was not until it was picked up by subsequent reformers that his essay, Civil Disobedience, became one of the most influential pieces of American political philosophy in history, influencing Gandhi, Martin Luther King and the anti-Nazi resistance. Despite his time as a hermit, Thoreau teaches us how to approach our frighteningly vast, highly interconnected and morally troubling modern society. He challenges us to be authentic, not just by avoiding material life and its distractions, but by engaging with the world and withdrawing our support for the government when we believe it's acting unjustly. His works endure and remind us of just how important it is to remove the distractions of money, technology and other people's views in order to live according to our best and truest nature. And we're back. Well, that was uh, that second one was the spirit of what we do. And soul power, you know, is, is something that you only get a sense of when you practice it, not just individually, which is powerful, but when you get a bunch of people together who are in that space, we are unbeatable. And I experienced that numerous times, not only at that first occupation we did, of the, the one that really forced the apology of genocide in Canada, the Catholic Cathedral in downtown Vancouver in March 2008 where William walked in and, and was inspired to go beyond himself in his crushed condition. And we forced, using moral power, nonviolent power, standing in that church, the priest literally ran out the back door after trying to assault us. He, one guy put me in an arm lock. But then they literally ran away from us because there was 50 of us. I was the only w white guy there. 50 survivors of that crime, reclaiming that space morally with that power to say, look, you didn't wipe us out. We're still here. Now we're reclaiming that space. In fact, Harriet Nahani, who was one of the elders who was with us, went up to the pulpit and she was speaking to this congregation. They were, you know, you're kind of run-of-the-mill Catholic people sitting there. And she spoke to them. They were gobsmacked. They didn't know what to do because the priests had all run out in fear, of course. And Harriet said from that pulpit that day, you people use this place to destroy my people, but I'm not going to destroy you in turn. I'm going to give you a chance to change. We're going to use this building to teach you 
what you did to us. Now, that philosophy right there is exactly behind what we're going to do a month today, September 4th. We are going to reclaim these places because they don't belong to killers anymore. They belong to all of us. We're going to go in and seize it and start using these buildings to help all of the people. The most obvious need in a place like downtown Vancouver is open them up to the homeless. That's what they should be doing anyway, but they don't. Um, but it's part of that bigger perspective we always have to keep. So in terms of the actions, the next 15 minutes, I'm going to talk about that because a number of you are waiting to hear about, you know, some direction in terms of the training. Now, don't forget the training is going to be happening offline, face-to-face, all over the world in training workshops. We're doing hands-on civil disobedience workshops and other skills we're going to be teaching people over the next month. If you want to be part of that, write to us, Republic National Council at ProtonMail.com. We'll connect you up with people in seven other countries as well, including America, England, Canada. But um, as part of that, we have to talk about our genuine concerns, our fears, but also look at the ways we've gone around that in the past. First thing to keep in mind, these actions are not a one-time, one-off event. They're not an isolated act because one action by itself never does anything. It gets you a bit of publicity and then things are the same. We're not dabbling in this. This is a permanent commitment. View this as part of a continuum a continuum of events as our movement builds. Like Sun Tzu said in the art of war, there's no final outcome in a war. Each battle is a chance to learn. Even if you lose it, you learn something and get stronger for the next time. You have to have that long-term view. Or you won't appreciate what we're doing and you won't sustain yourself in these direct actions we're going to be holding. The actions themselves are a dead end unless they're part of a bigger reclaiming of the whole nation. And that's why... We do these actions within the jurisdiction of our own sovereign nation, the Republic of Canada. This works. If you're an individual going in there, you know, lawfully, a cop showing up still has authority over you because you're still in their jurisdiction. But once you take out citizenship, and I've done this time and again at these protests, I show it to the cop. I say, we're not part of your jurisdiction or nation. We're part of a different nation. You don't have authority of us. We're acting according to our own laws, which have banned COVID measures which have banned this church from operating on our territory and give us the lawful right to occupy it and, and take its wealth back and the land that you stole from our indigenous brothers and sisters and are using to kill them on. We show that new jurisdiction and they always back off. It's never failed. And that's the key to our power. You've got to do this action as part of a bigger sovereign jurisdiction that's not part of their system. That's really our protection and strength over the long run. So to do that, again, you've got to volunteer and train and really hook up with that with that nation if these actions are to uh, be effective and if you are to have your ass covered, because that actually it does that. Now, in terms of the action itself, there's three groups that do this. Let me go into a bit of detail about that. There's the action team itself. It's between five and eight people, no more than eight people, because groups that get larger than that tend to get infiltrated and taken out. We're forming small action teams of even you can even do it with four or five people but these responsibilities are one person acts as the relation public relations with the cops when they show up with the media he or she is the spokesperson for the event second person is the chief sheriff who kind of monitors it and organizes the action and he has or she has deputies third responsibility is you need a videographer you got to film it all what you do so let's say, for example, you're at a Catholic church. You go in unannounced. You never announce what you're doing. You hit them like Art of War says. Hit them out of, out of the darkness. 
and you do the action. But if you can, you have the second group. They're the diversionary protest. You get a bunch of people together and hold a protest somewhere else so the cops go and think that that's where the action's happening. Meanwhile, you go in and sees not only the church on a Sunday morning, we're also talking about going in and seizing the offices, the administration uh, wings of these churches. We've done that before in the Anglican and Catholic offices in Vancouver. We sent it and went right in. Now, that's something they didn't expect. They were expecting us to hit the churches. We seize their offices. And the third group are the occupiers, the community occupiers. You get a whole bunch of people together, and we've done this. You go to the homeless. You go to Native folks. You say, look, do you want a place to sleep tonight? We're seizing this church. Come on with us. And when you've got 100 to 200 homeless people or Native with you, they can't move you out of that church. As we learned when there was only 50 of us or 20 of us on other occasions, the last thing the church wants is to have their building harmed, even though it's not their building anymore. And so they don't want the cops to show up. They, we sat them out. Um, and so what you do is you take a lot of people in there. You take over the building and make it our permanent building. You transform it. You say, this is now, we're seizing this building in the name of the Republic. And according to these laws, we are transforming it into daycare, into homeless center, into community centers. The land, you take over and start setting up co-ops, community gardens. Now, we have all that information about where the Catholic Church owns lands, where their strategic centers are, and we provide that to people. And so there's the three aspects. The action team, kind of the tip of the spear. The diversionary protest, and then the bigger group, the whole community. You want to mobilize the whole community like we do. You enforce common law laws as a group. Every citizen is obligated to be an enforcer of the law. So you get a lot of them together, and this takes preparation. You've got to do education. You've got to run the idea past people, start meeting, give examples of how it's worked, like out of our movement. We're going to be doing all of that on the ground. So keep in mind those three aspects of what you're going to organize. How we fight, we do it nonviolently, of course. We don't need violence. We're the majority. And, of course, we need to defend ourselves. So the way we do that is simple. Um, you... You do that through a moral and intellectual high ground. You say to the police and to others, when they say, where's your authority? Well, it's very simple. You go to um, our common law training manual, which I hope you have a copy of, and you go to page 47. It's appendix one. It says, the sovereign basis of common law courts. Well, the, you know, the authority, Christian, where your authority comes from, it's inborn. We have the authority to do this. Like, the fellow was saying in that educational about Henry David Thoreau, it's inborn. We do not have to cooperate, and we have the right to remove criminal bodies from our community and take back their assets. That's codified in the international law. It's codified in our own hearts and our minds, the ability to do that. So we invite the police in, as we did when we occupied the churches. We say, we are deputizing you to protect us. We're acting in the interest of the people against a child trafficking, murderous, self-admitted genocidal organization. We have the right to do that. That's where we get a legitimacy from. Our documents, our common law, statutes, all of that, they are obligated under the law to enforce. And if they don't, they're obstructing justice. You know, every time I've told a cop that, they get on the walkie-talkie, they ask for instructions, and they stand down. They back off. They watch what's happening, but they don't intervene. They don't make arrests. Every time I've invoked that, and that's been, that experience has been uh, copied all over the world, when they system sees you know what you're talking about and you know your power, they have no power over you. And generally, that's the case. So 
Um, another thing to keep in mind, of course, is the um, the whole uh, question of the use of force and security. Well, again, go to page uh, 42 in the Common Law Training Manual, and you'll see a whole section discussing citizens' arrest. Now, even under their rules of the present system, in Canadian law, they've even expanded citizen arrest laws, even under their crown law, before you had to have seen a crime happen for you as a citizen to detain somebody. Now, under the new, uh, it's called the Citizens Arrest and Self-Defense Act in Canada, 2012, citizens can now arrest anybody if they even suspect them of committing or will commit a crime. Well, hello, every Catholic priest in the world is obligated to commit crime by that policy called crimen solicitanus. Every priest in the world is an accomplice to child trafficking and rape and possibly even murder by their own policy. So in other words, you can go to any cop and say, I suspect this Catholic priest of being part of a criminal conspiracy, and you show them the crimen solicitanus policy and say, this gives them the right to traffic children. They're a threat to our community. I'm going to go arrest them. I need your help. That's the law on our side, citing their own policy against them. So, I mean, that's, you know, that's one example of how we do it. We just cite, we, we're standing on the moral and legal high ground. We need to act on it. The problem is people don't act on it because of their fear and their ignorance. And those two things are what we wear away at. We, we wear down through our, these kind of workshops, these kinds of teach-ins, and the practical training on the ground. Now, again, like I said, you've got to integrate that with our bigger goal of taking back the whole country and, uh, and our countries. And so we plug in and move uh, into these movements, knowledge of the Republic of Canada. We urge people to take out citizenship. That's part of our real protection. Now, again, we don't have time, but get the book, The Case for Canada, Amazon.com, put in the name Kevin Annett, look up Establishing Liberty, The Case for Canada. Just read the uh, Declaration of Independence there about the reason for Canada being formed. It's because the predatory powers called the Crown of England and the Church of Rome have been at the source of the crime for many centuries in this country. They have lost the right to govern because they never had the right to govern us. All right. Notwithstanding the fact as well, the Crown of England was actually disestablished by an act of Parliament in 1649 that passed the law when they overthrew the king and set up the Puritan Republic. They said it's an act of treason to reestablish Brit the British monarchy. The fact that the son of, of King Charles reestablished that monarchy through a military coup 11 years later didn't create a de jure power that was legitimate, it created de, de facto power. So ever since 1660, the Crown of England has not have, had lawful jurisdiction. They only assert that jurisdiction through force. That's why the Canadian government, the Crown of England, every Commonwealth country from Australia to Canada, they're illegitimate rogue powers. We create a legitimate power when we invoke our republics. In other words, we're reestablishing the rule of law, folks. That's what we're doing. That's the bigger panorama here. And of course, the wider struggle and another piece in this, which I'm going to end on, is the fact that at a, a bigger level, we're also targeting the banks, the mortgage companies and the insurance companies that insure the Catholic, the Anglican, the United Churches that did these crimes. It's worked in the past, which is one of the reasons they buckled as we started picketing the insurance companies of the Roman Catholic Church and the Catholics and the Anglicans and United and said, you are protecting convicted genocidal bodies. You're committing a crime. And when we started doing that, that's when we started hearing talk of apologies. <laughs> no surprise. Like Sun Tzu says in The Art of War, attack your enemy where they're weak, at what they love, which is their money, 
and their public image. And that's exactly what we're doing in these actions. Now, final details in the last less than five minutes. And we're going to go out on a, a really good song by Phil Oaks about who Jesus really was. He was that poor peasant who took on the religion of his time. And his whole message is in the hands of all of us. That's kind of the beautiful message from Phil Oaks we're going to go out on. But before I finish on that, again, murderbydecree.com republicofcanada.org. Go to breaking news under the republicofcanada.org.site. ITCCS updates under murderbydecree.com. You'll see all three of those documents tomorrow that you'll need. Run them off. They're PDF documents. By tomorrow afternoon or evening, they'll be online. You can run them off. Those are the weapons you use when you take the actions that these churches and other church lines and properties in, um, in early September, September 4th, They'll be training before then to be part of that right to Republic National Council at ProtonMail.com. By the last Sunday in August, we're going to announce specifically where some of the places are um, that we're going to be gathering. Of course, not saying where we're going to hit, but there'll be more details about the cities they're happening in and other resources and contacts you'll need to do this. Um, and like I say, the documents will be posted tomorrow at those websites. Now, um, a final personal note, I've, uh, one of the people who died in the course of our struggle happened, his name was Bingo Dawson. I, I knew him well. He was a survivor. And he was killed soon after taking part of that occupation of Holy Rosary Cathedral. He was beaten to death by Vancouver police, witnessed by Ricky Lavalley, who was also then killed. But, but at our rally, this is what Bingo said, and I dedicate this action to Bingo and to his memory. He said he was describing being held in the Catholic residential school in Alert Day Bay, British Columbia. As a boy, St. Michael's School, he said, quote, those bodies we buried were so little, I'll never forget it. Shrunk down to nothing from never eating. But we ran out of ground, so we had to start shoving those kids in the school furnace. The Mounties and the Catholic priests showed up to supervise us when we burned up their bodies. They used to laugh and clap while we were doing it. Brother Clancy told me, there's nothing wrong with this. We're just solving the Indian problem. Everybody knew it was happening. You could smell that stench for miles. They're just pretending now they didn't know. That happened in 1962 in Alert Bay, British Columbia. Remember, Bingo, remember those fallen children. May their spirit activate you when you take this action. I need you to stay strong and stay clear in this and realize that unless we take these actions now, not just talk about it, but take action now. More children will die. And the sacrifice of bingo and so many of us will have been in vain. The responsibility is in your hands. Listen to this song. Take heed of the dangers facing us if we don't act, not if we do act. This is Kevin Annett, Eagle Strong Voice. We'll be back next week. Republic National Council at ProtonMail.com. Stay strong. Take action. I thank you.